0: You're listening to Return of the Birds, the serialized audiobook podcast of Wake Robin by John Burroughs. Thank you for choosing to listen to our podcast. We're grateful for your time and attention. If this is the first time you've dropped into our story, you might want to go back and listen to the previous episodes. But you're welcome to stick around. And a new request. Please become part of the growing Return of the Birds flock. Join our mailing list at returnofthebirds.com for exclusive updates and access to our upcoming book projects. I want to give a special thank you to the women and men in the field who have recorded and cataloged the bird calls and songs I licensed and used over the course of this audiobook. You are doing selfless and important work, and it's appreciated. Thank you. CHAPTER Five, SPRING AT THE CAPITOL WITH AN EYE TO THE BIRDS I came to Washington to live in the fall of 1863, and, with the exception of a month each summer spent in the interior of New York, have lived here ever since. I saw my first novelty in natural history the day after my arrival. As I was walking near some woods north of the city, a grasshopper of prodigious size flew up from the ground and alighted in a tree. As I pursued him, He proved to be nearly as wild and fleet of wing as a bird. I thought I had reached the capital of Grasshopperdom, and that this was perhaps one of the chiefs, or leaders, or perhaps the great high cock Olorum himself, taking an airing in the fields. I have never yet been able to settle the question, as every fall I start up a few of these gigantic specimens, which perch on the trees. They are about three inches long, of a gray-striped or spotted color, and have quite a reptile look. The greatest novelty I found, however, was the superb autumn weather, the bright, strong, electric days, lasting well into November, and the general mildness of the entire winter. Though the Mercury occasionally sinks to zero, yet the Earth is never so seared and blighted by the cold but that in some sheltered nook or corner signs of vegetable life still remain, which, on a little encouragement, even asserts itself. I have found wild flowers here every month in the year, violets in December, a single hostonia in January, the little lump of earth upon which it stood was frozen hard, and a tiny weed-like plant with a flower almost microscopic in its smallness growing along graveled walks and in old plowed fields in February. The liverwort sometimes comes out as early as the first week in March, and the little frogs begin to pipe doubtfully about the same time. Apricot trees are usually in bloom on All Fools' Day, and the apple trees on May Day. By August, Mother Hen will lead forth her third brood, and I had a March pullet that came off with a family of her own in September. Our calendar is made for this climate. March is a spring month one is quite sure to see some marked and striking change during the first eight or ten days. This season, 1868, is a backward one, and the memorable change did not come till the tenth. When the sun rose up from a bed of vapors and seemed fairly to dissolve with tenderness and warmth, for an hour or two the air was perfectly motionless and full of low, humming, awakening sounds, the naked trees had a rapt, expectant look from some unreclaimed common nearby, came the first strain of the song-sparrow. So homely, because so old and familiar, yet so inexpressibly pleasing, presently a full chorus of voices arose, tender, musical, half-suppressed. But full of genuine hilarity and joy, the bluebird warbled... robin called. The snowbird chattered. The meadowlark uttered her strong but tender note. Over a deserted field, a turkey buzzard hovered low and alighted on a stake in the fence, standing a moment with outstretched, vibrating wings until he was sure of his hold. A soft, warm, brooding day. Roads becoming dry in many places and looking so good after the mud and snow, I walk up beyond the boundary and over Meridian Hill to move along the drying road and feel the delicious warmth is enough. The cattle low, long and loud and look wistfully into the distance. I sympathize with them. Never a spring comes but I have an almost irresistible desire to depart. Some nomadic or migrating instinct or reminiscence stirs within me. I ache to be off. As I pass along, the high hole calls in the distance, precisely as I have heard him in the north. After a pause, he repeats his summons. What can be more welcome to the ear than these early first sounds? They have such a margin of silence. One need but pass the boundary of Washington city to be fairly in the country, and 10 minutes walk in the country brings one to real primitive woods. The town has not yet overflowed its limits like the great northern commercial capitals, and nature, wild and unkempt, comes up to its very threshold, and even in many places crosses it. The woods, which I soon reach, are stark and still. The signs of returning life are so faint as to be almost imperceptible, but there is a fresh, earthy smell in the air, as if something had stirred here under the leaves. The crow's claw above the wood, Or walk about the brown fields. I look at the grey silent trees long and long. But they show no sign. The catskins of some alders by a little pool have just swelled imperceptibly. And, brushing away the dry leaves and debris on a sunny slope, I discover the liverwort just pushing up a fuzzy tender sprout. But the waters have brought forth. The little frogs are musical. From every marsh and pool goes up their shrill but pleasing chorus. Peering into one of their haunts, a little body of semi-stagnant water, I discover masses of frogs spawn covering the bottom. I take up great chunks of the cold, quivering jelly in my hands. In some places there are gallons of it. A youth who accompanies me wonders if it would not be good cooked or if it could be not used as a substitute for eggs. It is a perfect jelly, of slightly milky tinge, thickly embedded with black spots about the size of a small bird's eye. When just deposited, it is perfectly transparent. These hatch in eight or ten days, gradually absorb the gelatinous surroundings, and the tiny tadpoles issue forth. In the city, even before the shop windows have caught the inspiration, spring is heralded by the silver poplars which line all the streets and avenues. After a few mild, sunshiny March days, you will suddenly perceive a change has come over the trees, Their tops have a less naked look. If the weather continues to warm, a single day will work wonders. Presently the tree will be one vast plume of gray downy tassels while not the least speck of green foliage is visible. The first week in April, these long mimic caterpillars lie all about the streets and fill the gutters. The approach of spring is also indicated by the crows and buzzards, which rapidly multiply in the environs of the city and grow bold and demonstrative. The crows are abundant here all winter but are not very noticeable except as they pass high in the air to and from their winter quarters in the Virginia woods. Early in the spring, as soon as it is light enough to discern them, they are there, streaming eastward across the sky, now in loose, scattered flocks, now in thick, dense masses, then singly and in pairs or triplets, but all setting in one direction, probably to the waters of eastern Maryland. Toward night they begin to return, flying in the same manner and directing their course to the wooded heights on the Potomac, west of the city. In spring, these diurnal mass movements cease. The clan breaks up, the rookery is abandoned, and the birds scatter broadcast over the land. This seems to be the course everywhere pursued. One would think that, when food was scarcest, the policy of separating into small bands or pairs and dispersing over a wide country would prevail, as a few might subsist where a large number would starve. The truth is, however, that in winter, food can be had only in certain clearly defined districts and tracks, as along rivers and the shores of bays and lakes. A few miles north of Newburgh on the Hudson, the crows go into their winter quarters in the same manner, flying south in the morning and returning again at night, sometimes hugging the hills so close during a strong wind as to expose themselves to the clubs and stones of schoolboys ambushed behind trees and fences. The belated ones that come laboring along just at dusk are often so overcome by the long journey and a strong current that they seem almost on the point of sinking down whenever a wind or a rise in the ground calls upon them for an extra effort. The turkey buzzards are noticeable about Washington as soon as the season begins to open, sailing leisurely along two or three hundred feet overhead, or sweeping low over some common or open space where, perchance, a dead puppy or pig or fowl has been thrown. Half a dozen will sometimes alight about some such object out on the commons and with their broad dusky wings lifted up to their full extent threaten and chase each other while perhaps one or two are feeding. Their wings are very large and flexible and the slightest motion of them while a bird stands upon the ground suffices to lift its feet clear. Their movements when in air are very majestic and beautiful to the eye being in every respect identical with those of our common hen or red-tailed hawk. They sail along in the same calm, effortless, interminable manner and sweep around in the same ample spirals. The shape of their wings and tail, indeed their entire effect against the sky except in size and color, is very nearly the same as that of the hawk mentioned. A dozen at a time may often be seen high in the air, amusing themselves by sailing serenely round and round in the same circle. They are less active and vigilant than the hawk never poise themselves on the wing, never dive and gamble in the air, and never swoop down upon their prey. Unlike the hawks also, they appear to have no enemies. The crow fights the hawk, and the kingbird and the crow blackbird fight the crow, but neither takes any notice of the buzzard. He excites the enmity of none, for the reason that he molests none. The crow has an old grudge against the hawk, because the hawk robs the crow's nest and carries off his young. The kingbird's quarrel with the crow is upon the same grounds, but the buzzard never attacks live game or feeds upon the new flesh when old can be had. In May, like the crows, they nearly all disappear very suddenly, probably to their breeding haunts near the seashore. Do the males separate from the females at this time and go by themselves? At any rate, In July, I discovered that a large number of buzzards roosted in some woods near Rock Creek, about a mile from the city limits, and as they do not nest anywhere in this vicinity, I thought they might be males. I happened to be detained late in the woods, watching the nest of a flying squirrel, when the buzzards, just after sundown, began to come by ones and twos and alight in the trees near me. Presently they came in greater numbers, but from the same direction, flapping low over the woods and taking up their position "'in the middle branches. "'On alighting, each one would blow very audibly through his nose, "'just as a cow does when she lies down. "'This is the only sound I have ever heard the buzzard make. "'They would then stretch themselves after the manner of turkeys "'and walk along the limbs. "'Sometimes a decayed branch would break under the weight of two or three "'when, with a great flapping, they would take up new positions.' They continued to come till it was quite dark, and all the trees about me were full. I began to feel a little nervous, but kept my place. After it was entirely dark and all was still, I gathered a large pile of dry leaves and kindled it with a match, to see what they would think of a fire. Not a sound was heard till the pile of leaves was in full blaze, when instantaneously every buzzard started. I thought the treetops were coming down upon me, so great was the uproar but the woods were soon cleared and the loathsome pack disappeared in the night. About the 1st of June, I saw numbers of buzzards sailing around over the great falls of the Potomac. A glimpse of the birds usually found here in the latter part of winter may be had in the following extract, which I take from my diary under date of February 4th. Quote, made a long excursion through the woods and over the hills, went directly north from the capital for about three miles the ground bare and the day cold and sharp. In the suburbs, among the scattered shanties, came suddenly upon a flock of birds feeding about like our northern snow buntings. Every now and then they uttered a piping, disconsolate note, as if they had a very sorry time of it. They proved to be shore larks, the first I had ever seen. They had the walk characteristic of all larks, were a little larger than the sparrow, had a black spot on the breast, with as much white on the underparts of their bodies, As I approached them, the nearer ones paused and, half-squatting, eyed me suspiciously. Presently, at a movement of my arm, away they went, flying exactly like the snow bunting and showing nearly as much white. I have since discovered that the shore lark is a regular visitant here, in February and March, when large quantities of them are shot or trapped and exposed for sale in the market. During a heavy snow, I have seen numbers of them feeding upon the seeds of various weedy growths and the large market garden well into town. Pressing on, the walk became exhilarating, followed by a little brook, the eastern branch of the Tiber, lined with bushes and a rank growth of greenbriar. Sparrows started here and there and flew across the little bends and points. Among some pines just beyond the boundary, I saw a number of American goldfinches in their grey winter dress, pecking at the pine cones. A golden-crowned kinglet was there also, a little tuft of grey feathers hopping about as restless as a spirit. Had the old pine trees food delicate enough for him also? Further on, in some low-open woods, saw many sparrows, the fox, white-throated, white-crowned, the Canada, the Song, the Swamp, all herding together along the warm and sheltered borders. To my surprise, I saw a chewink, also and the yellow-rumped warbler, The purple finch was there likewise, and the Carolina wren and the brown creeper. In the higher, colder woods, not a bird was to be seen. Returning near sunset across the eastern slope of a hill which overlooked the city, was delighted to see a number of grass finches or vesper sparrows, birds which will be forever associated in my mind with my father's sheep pastures. They ran before me, now flitting a pace or two, now skulking in the low stubble, just as I had observed them when a boy. A month later, March 4th, is this note. After the second memorable inauguration of President Lincoln, took my first trip of the season, the afternoon was very clear and warm, real vernal sunshine at last, though the wind roared like a lion over the woods. It seemed novel enough to find within two miles of the White House a simple woodsman chopping away as if no president was being inaugurated. Some puppies, snugly nestled in the cavity of an old hollow tree, he said, belonged to a wild dog. I imagine I saw the wild dog on the other side of Rock Creek, in a great state of grief and trepidation, running up and down, crying and yelping, and looking wistfully over the swollen flood, which the poor thing had not the courage to brave. This day, for the first time, I heard the song of the Canada Sparrow, a soft, sweet note almost running into a warble. Saw a small black velvety butterfly with a yellow border to its wings. Under a warm bank found two flowers of the Houstonia in bloom saw frogs spawn near Piney Branch and heard the hyla. Among the first birds that make their appearance in Washington is the crow blackbird. He may come any time after the first of March. The birds congregate in large flocks and frequent groves and parks alternately swarming in the treetops and filling the air with their sharp jangle, and alighting on the ground in quest of food, their polished coats glistening in the sun from very blackness as they walk about. There is evidently some music in the soul of this bird at this season, though he makes a sad failure at getting it out. His voice always sounds as if he were laboring under a severe attack of influenza, though a large flock of them, heard at a distance in a bright afternoon of early spring, produce an effect not unpleasing. The air is filled with crackling, splintering, spurting, semi-musical sound. All parks and public grounds about the city are full of blackbirds. They are especially plentiful in the trees about the White House, breeding there and waging war on all other birds. The occupants of one of the offices in the west wing of the treasury one day had their attention attracted by some object striking violently against one of the window panes. Looking up, they beheld a crow blackbird pausing in midair a few feet from the window. On the broad stone windowsill lay the quivering form of a purple finch. The little tragedy was easily read. The blackbird had pursued the finch with such murderous violence that the latter, in its desperate efforts to escape, had sought refuge in the treasury. The force of the concussion against the heavy plate glass of the window had killed the poor thing instantly. The pursuer, no doubt astonished at the sudden and novel termination of the career of its victim, hovered a moment, as if to be sure of what had happened, and made off. It is not unusual for birds, when thus threatened with destruction by their natural enemy, to become so terrified as to seek safety in the presence of man, I was once startled, while living in a country village, to behold, on entering my room at noon, one October day, a quail sitting upon my bed. The affrighted and bewildered bird instantly started for the open window, to which it had no doubt been driven by a hawk. The crow blackbird has all the natural cunning of his prototype, the crow. In one of the inner courts of the treasury building, there is a fountain with several trees growing near. By midsummer the blackbirds become so bold as to venture within this court. Various fragments of food tossed from the surrounding windows reward their temerity. When a crust of dry bread defies their beaks, they've been seen to drop it into the water, and when it had become soaked sufficiently, to take it out again. They build a nest of coarse sticks and mud, the whole burden of the enterprise seeming to devolve upon the female. For several successive mornings just after sunrise, I used to notice a pair of them flying to and fro in the air above me as I hoed in the garden, directing their course, on the one hand, to a marshy piece of ground about a half-mile distant, and disappearing, upon their return, among the trees about the capital. Returning, the female always had her beak loaded with building material, while the male, carrying nothing, seemed to act as her escort, flying a little above and in advance of her, and uttering now and then, His husky, discordant note. As I tossed a lump of earth up at them, the frightened mother bird dropped her mortar, and the pair scurried away, much put out. Later, they avenged themselves by pilfering my cherries. The most mischievous enemies of the cherries, however, here, as at the north, are the cedar waxwings, or cherry birds. How quickly they spy out the tree. Long before the cherry begins to turn, they are around, alert and cautious. In small flocks, they circle about, high in the air, uttering their fine note, or plunge quickly into the tops of remote trees. Day by day, they approach nearer and nearer, reconnoitering the premises and watching the growing fruit. Hardly have the green lobes turned a red cheek to the sun before their beaks have scarred it. At first, they approach the tree stealthily, on the side turned from the house, diving quickly into the branches in ones and twos, while the main flock is ambushed in some shade tree not far off. They're most apt to commit their depredations very early in the morning and on cloudy, rainy days. As the cherries grow sweeter, the birds grow bolder, till, from throwing tufts of grass, one has to throw stones in good earnest or lose all his fruit. In June they disappear, following the cherries to the north, where by July they are nesting in the orchards and cedar groves. Among the permanent summer residents here, one might say city residents, as they seem more abundant in town than out, the yellow warbler or summer yellowbird is conspicuous. He comes about the middle of April and seems particularly attached to the silver poplars. In every street and all day long, one may hear his thin, sharp warble. When nesting, the female comes about the yard, pecking at the clothesline, and gathering up bits of thread to weave into her nest. Swallows appear in Washington from the first to the middle of April. They come twittering along in the way so familiar to every New England boy. The barn swallow is heard first, followed in a day or two by the squeaking of the cliff swallow. The chimney swallows or swifts are not far behind and remain here in large numbers the whole season. The Purple Martins appear in April as they pass north and again in July and August on the return accompanied by their young. The national capital is situated in such a vast spread of wild, wooded or semi-cultivated country and is in itself so open and spacious with its parks and large government reservations, that an unusual number of birds find their way into it in the course of the season. Rare warblers, as the black pole, the yellow-red pole, and the bay-breasted, pausing in May on their northward journey, pursue their insect game in the very heart of the town. I have heard the veery thrush in the trees near the White House. And one rainy April morning, about six o'clock, he came and blew his soft, mellow flute in a pear tree in my garden. The tones had all the sweetness and wildness they have when heard in June in our deep northern forests. A day or two afterward, in the same tree, I heard for the first time the song of the ruby-crowned wren, or kinglet. The same liquid bubble and cadence which characterized the wren songs generally but much finer and more delicate than the song of any other variety known to me. Beginning in a fine round needle-like note and rising into a full sustained warble. A strain on the whole remarkably exquisite and pleasing, the singer being all the while busy as a bee catching some kind of insects. It is certainly one of our most beautiful bird songs and Audubon's enthusiasm concerning its song as he heard it in the wilds of Labrador is not a bit extravagant. The song of the kinglet is the only characteristic that allies it to the wrens. The capital grounds, with their fine large trees of many varieties, draw many kinds of birds in the rear of the building, the extensive grounds are particularly attractive, being a gentle slope, warm and protected, and quite thickly wooded. Here in the early spring, I go to hear the robins, catbirds, blackbirds, wrens, etc. In March, the white throated and white crowned sparrows may be seen, hopping about on the flower beds or peering shyly from the evergreens. The robin hops about freely upon the grass, notwithstanding the keeper's large lettered warning and at intervals, and especially at sunset, carols from the treetops in his loud, hearty strain. The kingbird and the orchard starling remain the whole season and breed in the treetops. The rich, copious song of the starling may be heard there all the forenoon. The song of some birds is like scarlet, strong, intense, emphatic, This is the characteristic of the orchard starlings, also of the tanagers and the various crossbeaks. On the other hand, the songs of other birds, such as certain of the thrushes, suggest the serene blue of the upper sky. In February, one may hear in the Smithsonian grounds the song of the fox sparrow. It is a strong, richly modulated whistle the finest sparrow note I have ever heard. A curious and charming sound may be heard here in May. You are walking forth in the soft morning air when suddenly there comes a burst of bubble link metally from some mysterious source. A score of throats pour out one brief, hilarious, tuneful jubilee and are suddenly silent. There is a strange remoteness and fascination about it. Presently you discover its source skyward, and a quick eye will detect the gay band pushing northward. They seem to scent the fragrant meadows far off and shout forth snatches of their songs in anticipation. The bubble link does not breed in the district, but usually pauses in his journey and feeds during the day in the grasslands north of the city. When the season is backward, they tarry a week or ten days, singing freely and appearing quite at home. In large flocks, they search over every inch of ground, and at intervals, hover on the wing or alight in the treetops, all pouring forth their gladness at once and filling the air with a multitudinous musical clamor. They continue to pass, traveling by night and feeding by day, till after the middle of May, when they cease. In September, with numbers greatly increased, they are on their way back. I am first advised of their return by hearing their calls at night as they fly over the city. On certain nights the sound becomes quite noticeable. I have awakened in the middle of the night and, through the open window as I lay in bed, heard their faint notes. The warblers begin to return about the same time and are clearly distinguished by their timid yeeps. On dark cloudy nights the birds seem confused by the lights of the city and apparently wander about above it. In the spring, the same curious incident is repeated, though but few voices can be identified. I make out the snowbird, the bobolink, the warblers, and on two nights during the early part of May, I heard very clearly the call of the sandpipers. Instead of the bobolink, one encounters here in the June meadows the black-throated bunting a bird very closely related to the sparrows and a very persistent, if not a very musical songster. He perches upon the fences and upon the trees by the roadside and spreading his tail and gives forth his harsh strain. Like all sounds associated with early summer, it soon has a charm to the ear quite independent of its intrinsic merits.
1: You listen to Return of the Birds, a serialized audiobook podcast of Wake Robin, written by John Burroughs and read by Peter Medic, with bird vocalizations courtesy of the McCauley Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Recording, editing, and post-production by 44 from 26 in Bellingham, Washington. Post-production and mastering by Counterweight Creative, recorded at One Fine Studio in Bellingham, Washington. Engineered, produced, and directed by Peter Medic. This has been a presentation of 44 from 26, a family-owned and operated media experiment. For more updates, we invite you to join the growing 44 from 26 community at 44from26.com or visit returnofthebirds.com. Wake Robin is available for digital download in e-reader format at archive.org. This is 44 from 26.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Return of the Birds. Please visit returnofthebirds.com to find show notes for each episode. The show notes include links back to the Macaulay Library bird vocalizations we used in this episode, images of the birds mentioned in the episode, and more. Finally, any flubs, goofs, and mispronunciations or errors are mine. If you want to tell me about them, stop by 44from26.com forward slash contact and click the button to leave a voicemail or send an email. Till next time, chirp away.